For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because he will, we will see him. And he will... And, We're going to be returning to that uh, passage that Rob just read in a little bit. I, I, I know that most of you are very much aware of the fact that this is the 21st anniversary of the bombing of the uh, twin buildings. and It always touches a chord of emotion in, in our hearts when we think about that time. One of the most amazing things to me was the fact this last week I read an article about the impending anniversary coming up today and talking about how many people now in our country who are not old enough to remember that. There are incoming freshmen as well as some graduating seniors that are not old enough to remember uh, 9-11. It also indicated that there are other times when usually the death of a a well-known person has captured the attention nationally or internationally of the populace. Did you know that in 1997, I know that's ancient history for some of you, but 1997, that in the space of just one week, Diana, Princess of Wales, died in Paris. The woman known as Mother Teresa died in Calcutta, and Viktor Frankl died in Vienna, all within the space of one week. Let me also mention these names. There were some other people that passed from this life on that particular week. Let me run these names by you. Joseph Rinconi, Loretta Smith, Brian Watson, Russell Strauss, Edward Washington, and Eleanor Thomas. Now, maybe you're thinking you don't recognize any of the names on that second list, and that's a good thing. Because uh, they wouldn't do any good to really think too hard about it, because I picked those names at random from the obituaries of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. But unlike Diana and Teresa and Victor, these people that I mentioned in the second list are unknown, except to family and friends, at best I know. I'll tell you who, do, who does know who is on that list, that second list, and that's God himself. God took notice when those people passed from this life. And, and Paul assures us in Galatians 2 and verse 6 that God has no favorites. He, he loves and values all people equally. Here's what the passage actually says. Again, Galatians 2 and verse 6. But from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. Paul is just simply saying in that last statement, I think this is, is, is his point, is that those people that are perhaps best known really did not benefit my life personally in any way. But there are other people that you know of and that I know of who have, have been wonderful blessings in our lives, even though they are not famous people. And if what Paul said here to the Galatians is true, and we know that it is, then Loretta Smith, as well as the other five people that I mentioned, were just as special to God as the people on the first list. And, and let me tell you this this morning, right off the bat, so are you. We need to understand God's evaluation of people in general. Now, we understand, we've talked about this just a few weeks ago, that God has a special providence and a special perspective on people that are already his, those who are part of his spiritual kingdom. But God loves everybody. 
the golden text of the Bible, God so loved the world. And, and that's certainly true, and it's reaffirmed throughout Scripture. And if you don't think so, then I'm going to try to convince you otherwise. And, and, and I know that for some of you that, that I got my work cut out for you, but I'm still going to give it a shot this morning. So we want to begin with that fundamental question is, what does God think about you? Are you, in fact, special to God? Now, maybe you identify more with Charlie Brown of Peanuts cartoon fame than you can relate to any uh, list that contains celebrities and persons of notoriety. And that's because if you know Charlie Brown, you know that he is a perennial loser. He pitches for the baseball team that never wins. When he represents his class in the spelling bee, you know immediately that they're going to be eliminated in the first round. Thank you, Charlie. And that because, that's because Charlie Brown is a loser. And, and maybe if you're honest with yourself, you can look at him and his characteristics and you can say, yeah, that's, that's, that's me. That captures me more than just about anybody that I could think of. Maybe you dreamed of growing to greatness, but you're somehow stuck in the middle of mediocrity. You thought someday you would soar to the sky, but somehow that hasn't panned out and you've really not gotten off the ground. Maybe you can relate to the comedian who said, I always wanted to be somebody. And then when I reached 30, I realized I should have set my sights higher. She was exactly right about that. It's not difficult to be somebody. The trick is being somebody special. To be somebody who actually makes a contribution to this world in which we live while we're here. To be somebody who lives up to their potential. To be somebody who makes a positive difference in the world. Somebody who can make the human race a better place because we were in it. That's, that's who you wanted to be. And in your heart, you know that you still want to be that somebody. God knows you tried, but somehow we're still high-centered on average or less. And by the way, someone mentioned the fact that if we are content with being average, remember that average is as close to the bottom as it is to the top. That's right. Those profuse predictions your classmates made about you back in high school, and they wrote in your high school yearbook, have not panned out. And they couldn't drag you to a class reunion so that everybody could see how you have not lived up to your potential to save your life. You thought that you would be a top floor in, in a top floor corner office with a smashingly stylish spouse and high performance kids. But so far, you haven't reached assistant to the assistant to the vice president and your office in, is in the corner of the supply room. Your spouse isn't exactly poster material. In fact, it's like one man said, if that's his trophy wife, whatever he did, it wasn't first place. Now, you don't, you don't sport a sticker that says, my child is an honor student at Wahoo Elementary. Your house is 3,000 square feet and two garage bays shy of being your dream house. You're neither driving with distinction, you're not dressing with success. You've missed those status symbols by country mile. And right now, if you're honest with yourself, you have the self-image of a bowl of oatmeal. Let's face it, we're all losers to a certain extent. If we simply evaluate our assets and the things that we have going for us in this world based only on how the world views us, we have every reason to go home depressed. Or just maybe you might be at the other end of that spectrum and you have achieved some measure of success. You have, you have the trophy spouse. Your kids make straight A's and they have straight teeth. You live in a, 
in the right gated community and your Mercedes is in the garage and it's fully paid for. But here's the problem. You're still miserable. You have found that those material things, those status symbols will not bring you lasting happiness. So you have all the trappings of success, or if someone has expressed it like this, you've got all the toys, but none of the joys. It did not bring you the kind of happiness you thought that that kind of material success would bring you, nor much of the security either. And if you could, you'd change your name, you would sneak off to Tahiti, and you'd start all over again. No one else had to know, but you're a loser. Now, how am I doing so far? Probably not very well if it's getting you to feel better about yourself. Let's try God's perspective for just a moment. Here's what Luke chapter 12, verses 6 and 7 says. And these are the words of Jesus himself. You know the passage. The Lord asked the question of his disciples, Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? And not one of them is forgotten before God. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, watch this last statement, you are of more value than many sparrows. Now, I don't have to tell you that that's God's evaluation of you and me. He doesn't forget about a sparrow that sells on eBay two for a penny. And, and, and the Lord goes on to say, you're worth more than a world full of sparrows to the God who made us. Could or would God ever forget about you? The biblical answer to that is... Not a chance. Scripture goes to some length in a number of places to communicate to us that God knows everything there is to know about you and me. And that might be intimidating, except for the fact that we know from Scripture that the one who knows us best loves us most. But still, the fact is that God, God knows everything there is to know about us. And, and the Sparrow's passage really indicates that, I think, and brings it home to us in a very real way. Scripture goes to some length to tell us that God knows everything about us. He knows your shoe size. He knows your favorite food. He knows what you like and what you dislike about your current job. He knows the color of your eyes. He knows the shape of your nose. He knows how many hairs are on your head. He knows what color your hair was before you applied that cream rinse. Or before it all fell out. And he still considers you to be a person of infinite value. I know that's difficult for us to assimilate mentally and to appreciate spiritually, but it is true nonetheless. I remember seeing something one time when I lived in another city that I hadn't seen in years. This had been a few years back, and it was at a convenience store where I was buying gas. That's before you could pay for your gas at the pump, so I went in to pay, and I saw a jar on the counter of the convenience store. It was filled with beans. Some of you are already ahead of me. Let me catch up, please. There was a sign indicating that if you could guess how many beans were in that jar, then you were going to win some kind of prize. I don't remember exactly what the prize was, like a tour of a water purification plant, something exciting along those lines. And, of course, I didn't buy a chance, which was the whole idea behind that jar of beans. You were supposed to buy a chance, and then you were able to make a guess, and if you guessed the closest, then you would win the prize. I didn't buy a chance, but I was intrigued. And as I was st stood there in line waiting to pay for my purchase, I, I, I began to think about how many, and I, I'm not at all good with those kinds of things. You've heard me do preacher count of audience sizes. You know that I'm not good in, in, in making those kinds of evaluations. And, and I was standing there and I was mulling that mystery and someone behind me over my shoulder said, 
how many you think's in there? And I turned and I was face to face with a woman who had really, really big hair. I had just read the passage that we just read about God knowing the number of hairs on our head. And it was all I could do to keep from laughing in her face. Well, my first thought was I'd have a better chance of guessing how many beans are in that jar than guessing how many hairs are poking through that woman's scalp. I really don't know how to describe her exactly to say that she didn't need a hairstylist as much as she needed a weed eater. But remarkably, and here's the point. God knew exactly. He knew how many hairs were in her, in her head. Now, before you go to bed tonight, take a, take a quick stop by the mirror. Take a guess at the number of hairs in your head. Try to estimate how many you think are there. I bet you couldn't come within 1,000, maybe even within 5,000 of guessing the right number. But again, the point is, God knows exactly. Now, now why he would choose to know that, I don't know. But Jesus did assure us in the passage that we just read that God knows how many hairs are on your head. And he knows that because he wants you to know the specific details of your life and of your person. Right down to the freckles and the hairs. And that's because he's interested in you. Amazingly, a number of places, the Bible affirms the fact that God is infinitely interested in every one of us. And as I mentioned at the beginning of this, uh, of this service, in, in a day of of social media, we, we find that people may be interested in us for all the wrong reasons. And if you read the comment section of any blog, you'll probably find some very uncomplimentary things said. We, we don't necessarily want to know what everybody thinks about us. But, but when, we, when, when we see God's evaluation of us, then all of a sudden we sit up and take notice. And, and that's for good reason. Because he is the only one who is qualified to evaluate us. And to make those kinds of judgments and to determine what value and what worth that we have as we walk through this world. Only God can decide because he knows us intimately and he cares about us and he's interested in every nuance of our lives. He knows that because he wants to know those specific details. He, because you're that valuable to him and because he, he values you that much. Now, it ought to be encouraging to know that God doesn't judge our worth by the silly standards that we use to measure each other, like your financial status or by your dress size or by where you live or by the kind of car that you drive. People make snap judgments all the time based on those shallow things, don't they? But God doesn't evaluate us that way. He doesn't make any kind of judgment about us based on those status symbols, on those very shallow material things. Let me talk for just a moment, if I may, about, biblically speaking, why God cares about us so much. Why he cares for us so much. The Bible teaches that God cares for us because, basically, we are his children, or at least we can be. Jesus died on a cross. We just gathered around the table to remember that sacrifice and, and to know that Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves because God wants us reconciled to his side. He wants all of his children to be in that fold and, and he wants us to be in good standing. And he's able to make that evaluation based upon the spiritual attributes and not just the externals that the world uses when it judges us. But again, the whole point is that everybody on the planet can that they have the potential of being children of God. All of us are his children in the sense that he is our creator. We understand that. 
But in a very special spiritual sense, the Bible says that when we become a part of his spiritual family, his forever family, the church, by virtue of our obedience to the gospel message, then we are adopted into his family and we are his very special sons and daughters. And that's what the text that Rob read a moment ago is all about. What manner of love, John says, has God bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God? It's not so much a question as it is an exclamation. How wonderful, John says, it is to know that we are the sons and the daughters of the creator of the universe. And if that doesn't help your self-esteem, then you're reading the wrong verses. Or you're reading the right verses and you're reading them the wrong way. John wants us to know that we're that valuable to God. And if you're already his child, because you have rendered obedience to the condition set forth in the gospel, then that makes you very special, as, as we've already seen in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1. Now, now, note the distinction here, and that distinction is very important. God doesn't love you because you're special. You're special because God loves you. I know we've said that a number of times from this pulpit, but it, bear, it bears repeating, because we need to really make sure that that's a part of our spiritual DNA. A thousand angels could not convince God otherwise that you are not special, that you are not valuable. Look at another passage with me for just a moment. This one comes from the first uh, uh, chapter of John, John's account of the gospel message. John 1, and I really want us to lock in on verse 12, but before we do, let me kind of give you an overview of the first 11 verses. In the first 11 verses of the first chapter of John, we're given a synopsis of God's plan to save. Just an overview of his scheme of redemption that takes us all the way from the beginning. Remember John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with, you know, the passage. And then it takes us down from the very beginning to the Jews' rejection of him and his death on the cross. Then look carefully at verse 12. But as many as received him, the him there, of course, is Jesus. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. And then he goes on to describe in verse 13 about how this sonship, this adoption takes place that allows us to become God's children. And he goes on to say that we're not born of blood or by the will of the flesh nor by the will of man, but of God. That is, there, there is no physical birth certificate that proves that I'm a child of God. That's all spiritual in nature. We have spiritual credentials that prove that we are adopted children of God. And that's even better than having a physical birth certificate. But John reminds, by, by the way, let me just stop and inject this. In, in most of the people... I started to say many, but really it's most. Most of the people in the religious world today say that at the moment that you receive Jesus, notice that that language is used here in John 1 verse 12. At the moment you receive Jesus, they say at that very moment that we come to believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be and that we accept him into our hearts and lives as our personal savior, they say that it is at that point that we enter into a saved relationship with him and we become his children. That's not what John says. John doesn't say that at the moment you receive Jesus, then you're a child of God. John reminds us that at the moment we receive him, we have only qualified ourselves to become his children. Did you see the nature of the language of the, of the grammar there? There are other things that remain for us to do in order to be adopted into his spiritual family. Like what things? Well, Jesus said in his parting comments to those first century disciples, go preach the gospel to every creature. He that believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. 
On the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached the first gospel sermon, he said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Only then can we exclaim, as did John in our text, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. We have the right to become his children when we first receive him and accept cognitively the facts about his death, burial, and resurrection. But we're not his children at that point when we just receive him into our hearts. We're, we're his children when we've done everything that he told us to do in order to have our sins washed away and then to be added by the Lord himself into his spiritual body, the church. That's Acts 2 and verse 47. That's how that whole day of Pentecost plays out. Now, there's no doubt in my mind no doubt whatsoever that April 15, 1982 was one of the most exciting and happiest days of my life. That date probably doesn't mean anything to anybody in this audience except to Mia and me. That was the day we took our first child home from the adoption agency, followed quickly by November the 9th, 1984, May 18, 1986, March 31, 1988. You're probably thinking, you guys got a problem, don't you? But those were very special days. In fact, again, words don't express the excitement that we felt knowing that those additions were being made to our family. And I remember each of those days vividly. And I, I remember how I tried to carry on my life while we were waiting to go like the first two times to the adoption agency and and, and just a matter of hours seemed like days while we were waiting for that time to come. On at least one of those dates, we went out to eat. The server who took our order was unaware, nonchalant, even yawned at one point on what was the most exciting day of our lives. She had no idea, no clue about what was to happen to our family. My world, our world had changed forever and she acted like it was just any other day. And to this day, all these years later, she does not know how special my daughters and my son are. But I do. And God does. You see, God knows every nuance of our hearts. And he wants all of us to be his children anyway. Even though what goes on in our hearts is not always something to write home about, nothing to brag about. But God still, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for, for the ungodly. Romans 5, 8 affirms. Here's something else I've learned from experience. Most newborns look pretty much, much alike. I can describe them in three words. Ragged, rumpled, and wrinkled. They're not a very pretty sight, if you're honest. And, and if you want to send me emails with with complaints about what I just said, feel free to send those to akingsley at ucoc.org. Okay. But over the, over the years of my ministry, I have looked and stared through the nursery window with dozens of proud mamas and papas. And I know that that's not a time when absolute candor is appreciated. And if you say something along the lines of, that baby sure is ugly then you'll probably lose a friend and maybe even the sight in one eye. You know, back when I was in school preparing for the ministry, I had an instructor who spent a lot of time with us preacher wannabes 
talking about the practical aspects of the ministry and church life, and one of those was how to deal with parents of newborn babies, and especially with the mamas. And among other things, he coached us on how to visit with those new parents and, and, and the new mothers and the tact that should be exercised in, in, in during those times. And he said, every mother thinks her newborn baby is beautiful. And in truth, now this was his opinion, but he still said this. In truth, he said, there has never been a pretty newborn. By the way, I'm sure he changed his mind when he and his wife had kids. But so what do you what do you do in those cases? Can, can you be truthful and still keep your friends or better yet still keep your life? You know, they tend to get defensive. If you say something that's too honest, he assured us that that's no problem at all. What he recommended for us to do in those occasions is that you view the infant, thoughtfully rub your chin, assume an attitude of awe and say, now there's a baby. You have been absolutely truthful without going too far. Anyway, the point that I was going to make was, I knew I had a point, is that God is a proud parent. He is our spiritual father. He is our creator, but he is our God. And we have this unique, special, wonderful relationship to him as our father. And the Bible tells us over, almost at least in principle on every page, that if you've been born into his kingdom, into his forever family, at the moment of your spiritual birth, every head in heaven turned in your direction. And God looked at you as you came out of the waters of baptism, and he said, isn't she beautiful? Isn't he wonderful? Now, if others yawned and acted as if it was just another day, that was their problem. You were and you are that special to him. And that's my message to you this morning. I felt like you needed to know that, or at least you needed to be reminded of that fact. Peter assures us in 1 Peter 5 or 7 that he cares for you. That's a brief statement, but doesn't it cover so much? He cares for you. One version reads like this, and I love this translation. He is always thinking about you. Doesn't that sound like a proud father? He's always thinking about you. Your birthday is circled on his calendar. If God has a refrigerator, your picture is on it. Isaiah 49, 16 says something along the lines of he has inscribed. One version actually says he has tattooed your name on his palm. God knows every one of us by name, even our middle names. Now, you may have been mistreated by other people. You may have been neglected, maybe even rejected by your own parents. I don't know your situation. Maybe you've been abused or abandoned by the one who promised to be yours for better and for worse for life. You may have been ignored by the people in your church. You may have spent a painful lifetime being put down instead of lifted up. That is a distinct possibility in an audience this size. You may have been friendless and you may have felt worthless. But let me tell you, let me tell you about Laurie before I close this lesson. Laurie was in the sixth grade. Her classroom was spick and span, and that was because this was the day for the end of the year parent-teacher conferences. And parents were going to be coming to school for a progress report from the teacher. And in this case, Laurie's teacher was a woman who did her job and did it well, whose name was Mrs. Lake. Didn't have a first name, just Mrs. Lake. A schedule was on the marker board. Laurie's name was the last name on that board. Mrs. Lake had phoned Laurie's parents, as well as the parents of all of her other students, and sent a reminder letter about the conference. 
But Laurie knew that her parents would not be there. You see, Laurie's father was an alcoholic. And many nights, this lonely sixth grader would would fall asleep listening to her parents fight. And then during the daytime, they acted as if she didn't even exist. So one after the other, the children were called to the hallway door where they were greeted with smiles and hugs by proud parents. The door would close and Laurie would hear the muffled voices of parents and child and teacher. And she imagined in her heart what it would be like if her parents were to be there and greet her at the door, but she knew that that would never happen. After everyone else's name had been called, Mrs. Lake opened the door and she motioned for Laurie. And Laurie slipped out into the hallway, sat in a chair across from the teacher. She was embarrassed that her parents hadn't come. She folded her little hands and she looked at the floor, refusing to make eye contact. Mrs. Lake pulled her chair over so that her knees were almost touching the knees of Laurie. And she lifted the little girl's chin so that she could look directly into her eyes. And she said, first of all, I want you to know how very much I love you. Second, Mrs. Lake continued, you need to know that it's not your fault that your parents are not here today. Again, Laurie looked into her teacher's eyes. No one had ever spoken to her like that before and and helped her to understand that she wasn't to blame for her parents' actions. And third, said the teacher, you deserve a conference whether your parents are here or not. You deserve how well you're doing, and and you need to know how wonderful I really think you are. And so Mrs. Lake held a conference for just Laurie. She showed her her grades. She discussed her papers and projects. She praised her efforts. She affirmed her strengths. Laurie did not know exactly when, but at some point... At some point, she heard the voice of hope in her heart. She realized for the very first time in her life that she was deserving of someone's love and that she could actually be worthwhile to herself and to others. Listen carefully to me, dear friends. I want to say three quick things to you. It'll take about 18 seconds. First of all, I want to end this lesson by reaffirming just how very much God loves you. Can we comprehend that? Absolutely not. But he loves you anyway. Second, I want you to know that you are not to blame for at least some of the things that have happened in your life. Some of those things that you've been carrying a weight of guilt for a long, long time. There are some things that you simply cannot control. And thirdly, I want you to know how wonderful God thinks you really are. And how that he has made provisions even for those actions that you are responsible for. Those, those mistakes that we've made in our lives. He sent his son to die in our place. So that we didn't have to bear the eternal penalty for our sins. He, he loves us that much. Kind of gives a different spin to John 3.16, doesn't it? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He loves every one of us that much. Jesus died on that cross And here's the only thing I can figure out. It's because he thinks you're worth it. He would be willing to do it again. And if you were the only person who lived on this planet, he would have allowed his son to die just for you. Because he values you that much. But here's the the negative side of that coin. If you never come to him in obedience... And you never become a part of his forever family by your obedience to the gospel message... 
and he died in vain for you. And this morning, we are pleading with you, if you're not a child of God, make this the day, this the moment, when you decide that you're turning your back on sin and repentance, confessing Jesus as God's son, and being baptized to have all of your past mistakes washed away. God loves you that much while we stand and while we sing.